All right, Matthew chapter 18 here, and uh, we're going to start a new chapter this evening. Verse 1, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So, kind of shifting gears here a little bit, you got a couple guys that are arguing. Uh, the, the, came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So they're arguing, and they're arguing about who is the greatest. So when you see these guys arguing like this, they're a little confused about what's really important and what's really going on here because they're confused really about the nature of the kingdom and, and how it's going to, uh, to operate and to function. And they have this, come over to Matthew 20, just a couple chapters over and they have this issue here where they're gonna they're they're <laughs> that it's becoming evident to them that christ is gonna die he's going away remember matthew 17 three times 16 to 17 three times he told them he was going to die and so forth so they know he's going away they don't fully understand it they don't fully have all the details in their thinking they're struggling with it uh, it's, but again, he, it's becoming evident to some of the disciples that he's going to turn over the, uh, turn the mantle over, if you will, Moses to Elijah and so forth like that idea. Not Elijah. Joseph. Joshua. All right. That's a, we're going to call it an evening here. Okay. <laughs> All right. He's going to turn it over, and, he's, and, and again, the Lord's beginning to talk to them about operating and functioning in his absence and so forth. And uh, this issue here is a contentious one. If you look at 2020, Matthew 20, verse 20, then came to him the mother of Zebedee, Zebedee's children, with her sons, worship him, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. So now you got mama and the Zebedee's boys. That's, um, I'm sorry, no, James and John. Okay, they're the, they're the sons of Zebedee. And Mama's getting involved now. And she's going to come in here and take care of her boys. And uh, she's going to pitch a fit here. And uh, she's going to come in and she's going to talk to them. Uh, and, and if you notice in verse 20, she comes in worshiping him. She's trying to butter him up, make, you know, make, get on his good side. You, you know, the biggest thing with the millennials there for a couple years was moms were going with their kids to job interviews and ha helping them with. And then when the bosses, the people, the HR were asking mom, you sit here and I'll, we're going to go in here and talk. And she's like, well, no, he doesn't have any idea of how to answer the questions. Then the guy goes, then what is he doing here? And if he doesn't understand... You know, and the story's all in the, I, I read that one in the uh, Investor's Daily, uh, Investor's Business Daily, IBD, <laughs> a couple years ago. And then over in the Wall Street Journal, they had an article in the editorial about how kids are ha having moms, parents, specifically moms, because mom's going to come and stick up for their sons you know, and uh, come in and try to help him get into and to do things. So here she is, buttering him up, verse 21. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? And she saith unto him, Grant, what do you want, 
Grant that my two sons may sit, the one on the right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. So what does she want? She wants her boys up front. If they're sitting at his right and left hand, then they're important over everybody else. And that's, that's the issue that's beginning to pop up back in Matthew 18. But look down at verse 25, Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called unto them, unto him, and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. Now notice that. How do, how, this mom's thinking like a Gentile thinks. How does the Gentile run his, their kingdom? They run it like a dictatorship. The guys in charge are the ones in charge. Verse 26, But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever shall, will be great among you, let him be your ministers. You see, Christ's kingdom isn't going to operate like the Gentiles do. That's why when we talk about uh, us in the heavenly places, we've been talking about that on Sunday mornings, and it says we're going to rule and reign. Well, when you think, and, and the verse Paul says, judge angels, and everybody's got this Gentile mentality of having authority over and running them and bossing them around, and that is not anything like how God operates in his kingdom. Verse 27, and whosoever will be chief among you, notice, let him be your servant. And that's the issue. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. That issue of being a servant. So when you come back to 18.1 here, that's the issue here. He's going he's gonna to begin to talk. They're having a discussion about who is going to be the greatest. And, that's that, and, and the, the problem with this is, there, is because it comes from a misunderstanding of what God's kingdom and how his kingdom is designed to work and to function and to operate. It's not going to operate like the Gentiles where they lord things over, Okay. When you think about us judging the angels, people, you know, you can't, he's, Paul says, you can't judge the smallest matters amongst yourself. You've got to come over here and you're going to judge angels, you know. So you've got to get, judge, think, discern, make decisions. That's what a judge does. Discerns what's going on, makes a ruling. Well, angels, they have a specific role when we get over and look at the creatures, in a, in a, not this week, but next week. They have a specific function that they're doing in the heavenly places. Jacob's ladder, remember, they are ascending and descending. So that means they're operating. They've got special things doing. And when they come up into the heavenly places and they come into us, we're not going to boss them around. Hey, you, come over here. Wait, shine my shoes and do my laundry. Not going to do that at all. There's a service that's involved. And when they ascend, they're coming out of the throne room of God, off of New Jerusalem, off the earth, up into the heavens, report, do what they need to do, and then they kind of come back down, get the next info, take it up. And there's a whole mechanism there and working in them. And I say that because in 
Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? So now Jesus is going to deal with this issue, and he's going to deal it by using an illustration. Verse 2, And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. So Jesus calls a little child unto him. Now, there's an indication when you look over in Mark and Luke and, uh, that this is one of Peter's children, okay, because he's at Peter's house about when all this is happening. So perhaps it is. It's no way to tell. Regardless, he calls a little child unto him, and he's sitting down right in the middle of him, and he says, verse 3, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted... Now, he's going to use an illustration here to illustrate the character of the testimony that these men are going to bear. Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it will be better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he was drowned in the depth of the sea. Whoa! <laughs> so the point's pretty clear, okay? The little child is a picture, it's going to be a picture here of several things, but is, is, the little child is, is a simple, a humble child. Somebody who just comes in and believes. Doesn't, isn't, uh, isn't going to try to run the show or anything. Just comes in and sits and believes. And notice in verse 3, and be ye, except ye be converted. That issue of being changed over. Uh, that I, we were talking about Porsches and Corvettes before we got started, and I, if if I had my choice, it's a convertible Corvette of a certain year and a certain style and so forth. But when you think about a convertible, that's that word convert starts with the top, and then it changes over to a vehicle with no top. That's the idea, converting. So the, you, these guys, they have to change. They're thinking about some of this. That, that, and what they have to do is they have to take on that mindset of that little child. They have to turn, change from the thinking that they're going to get to a thinking of, hey, we're here that we've got some things to do for others and to take care of other people. And really, that's the issue here when it comes into the kingdom here is this issue of him humbling himself as the little child. And uh, there's no doubt that, that they're, they've, they're not quite there yet. <laughs> but also, you and I don't want to miss this. Come over to Luke chapter 12. This issue here about the little child. So the question then is, is who does the little child represent? And there's a reason why the Lord sets a little child and he calls them, and he talks about a little child and little ones. Luke 12, verse 31. Luke 12, 31. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. 
Seek ye the, Luke 12, 31. Did I say it wrong? Okay, 12, 31. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. In other words, don't seek all the things, the physical things. You go back up, consider the ravens, consider the lilies, all that physical stuff. But rather seek God's kingdom, for, seek his righteousness first. Fear not, notice, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Who's going to get the kingdom? The little flock. Matthew 18, who's getting the kingdom? The little children. There's a comparison there. Come over to John 13. John chapter 13. And that issue here, again, John 13, we spent years in these past, no, not really years, but we spent a long time, because in John 13, the Lord, has he's in the upper room. He's just had supper with them. Uh, he's gone around and washed the disciples' feet. And Peter pulled back, as Peter should, hey, it's not for you to wash my feet. I'm washing your feet. And he said, no, Pete, you gotta, I'm here to show you what service is all about. Verse 33, 1333. So the context here, they're in the upper room. This, by the way, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 all happened the evening prior to the crucifixion, prior to going down into the garden and then him going and dying. Notice he says, 1333, little children, yet a little while am I with you. Ye seek me, and, and as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, ye cannot come, so now I say to you. Again, little children. And that's, when you come back here to Matthew 18, that's where, that's when he says little child, little ones. It's not hard to understand who, he, who that little child in Matthew 18 is representing. It's going to be that believing remnant, that little flock, that true nation. And so, what he's going to do here now, 18.4, is he's going to show his disciples in the picture of the little child sitting in their midst, the mental attitude, the thinking process that they are to have concerning the kingdom. Verse 4, 18.4. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child. The same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, notice in the kingdom, of, in that little flock, in the kingdom, the mental attitude of the believer is one of humility. Okay, and the thing about humility—that's the issue here. You know, when you have the truth and you understand what's going on, you can real quickly become humble in your thinking. Paul says, don't think, any, don't, uh, think of yourselves any... Man, Romans 12. <laughs> Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 3. For I say, through the grace given to, unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Don't, man, don't, don't get high-minded. That's what he says back in chapter 11. Don't get a big head. 
Knowledge puffeth up, but charity does what? Edifies. Charity. Love in action. The thinking how God thinks about it and going to work and doing. So when these guys back here in Matthew 18, when he says there in verse 4, hey, whosoever therefore shall humble himself, come in, just come in, quietly sit, get the truth, understand that the truth is coming from God, that's who the Lord is, not coming from you, not coming from your, who you are, but coming from the Lord. Just come and be. And you know what you'll be? You'll be, you'll be good to go. Come over to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10. Luke chapter 10. I would say, if you remember when we studied this stuff in Luke, but that, that was like seven years ago. <laughs> and so Luke 10, look at verse 20. Luke 10, 20. Not, notwithstanding in this rejoice not... Okay, and, and specifically here, he's talking to them about the ability to cast out spirits, all right? That the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Isn't that interesting? Don't rejoice in all of the powers and the abilities to do stuff, something that you can go out and kick out the demons. But rather, you know what you need to rejoice in? That simple fact that your name is written in heaven, that Lamb's book of life, verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said. This is one of the only times that I know of a verse that says that Jesus rejoiced. He had joy, he had all the, but here it says that he rejoiced. Hebrews 12 says, for the joy that was set before him. Okay, that's, that's not him rejoicing. That's him doing something. Here it literally says, in that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and hath revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Again, if you look at this, they're there to have a childlike humility. Uh, come back over with me to Micah, Micah 6. They're to, they are to have a childlike humility. And, and, and the ability, even, and this goes even for us, this is one of those transdispensational things <laughs> we, were, we were kind of talking about on Sunday night in the Q&A, one of those items that kind of come through. The first, the prerequisite for learning the Bible, the, the first thing in all of it is to have a childlike humility. You want to learn the Bible? You want to learn the truth? I, I, Micah 6 is where we're going. Okay, get you there. When you learn the Bible and you want to learn the will of God, you want to know what's going on, you can't come to it with a fat head, high and mighty, thinking you're going to figure it out. You've got to come humbly. And that's what he's saying here. And the reason I have you look at Micah 6, verse 8, is because this verse gets used 
all the time. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doeth the Lord, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. And that idea there of walking humbly, that's the idea in Matthew 18. That's the idea for really for all of us. It's not self-assertion. It's not, it's not which of these, go back to Matthew 18, it's not which of these guys is going to sit on your right hand and on your left hand. It, it's, it's not that. It's just being like that little child, that little one. Just coming in and not making anything of yourself, coming in and just sitting there and absorbing what's going on. Matthew 18, verse 4, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. So if you receive the little child, then you've received me. And again, we've seen this already, by the way, in Matthew 10. When they go in and he talks to them about, hey, when you go into that house and it receives you, you bless it, and the house that rejects you, you just move to the next house. All right? It's that thing over there in Matthew 25 when the Lord sends, divides out the nations, and he says, when you did it unto the least of, of my brethren, you did it unto me. That's the idea. Verse 6, but whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me. Uh-oh. Here we go. Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones, you're going to cause them a problem and you cause them to sin. All right? We're going to hurt their little feelings. That isn't what he's talking about. Offending here is he's talking about causing them to sin, not hurting their feelings. All right? But causing them to sin. Over there he talks, and Paul talks to us about if, a bro, if, if you eat meat and it offends your brother, knock off eating the meat. You ought to be thinking about your brother, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians over there. So that's the idea here. The idea here, the idea of if you offend one of these little ones and the idea that Paul's talking about is that when you, when you, when you offend them, it's not talking about hurting their feelings. It's talking about causing, the guy, causing them, I'm trying to figure out how to say it, causing them to no longer walk in the edification process that God has for them. Literally, you destroy the godly edification that God's trying to work on in their life. Okay? You follow that? Does that make sense? Because if you're going along here, and, and even these guys as well as for us, and somebody comes up and says, well, I'm, you eating meat on, you know, you eating that offends me, 1 Corinthians, Romans, and so forth, and you say, ah, yeah, just get over it and eat anyway. You, that guy steps back and goes, well, wait a minute. The thing in the weaker brother in Romans 14 and 15 there when that, that is clear as the nose on your face, you ought to be very considerate of what he's learning. He needs to understand why is it okay for me to be eating the meat. See? 
not, oh, you can just eat it, get over yourself and, and sit down. No, why is it okay? Well, because we don't esteem an idol for anything than what it is. Okay? You know, the, the dispensational things there. That's what's happening here. Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me. See, that's the issue. He's talking about them causing the man to sin, to not to continue on in the edification process for these guys. You're, you're, you begin to retard them. You begin to slow them down. You begin to, actually, they end up leaving for it. Usually when we have people come into here, I usually tell people, don't be offended by what, anything I say. Give it six months to a year before you decide to leave. <laughs> Because there's a reason behind what I'm saying, and you've got to, we got to get you there, okay? Um, we, I, we used to have a, young, a gentleman here, he wasn't young, but a gentleman here, and he did not appreciate the issue of how, what we believe about prayer. He wanted to name it and claim it. That's what he wanted. So I'm teaching. I don't know this. I'm not aware of what's going on. I'm teaching away, and I get over, and we talk about prayer, just talking to God and, and working on the Word of God, working in you and so forth, and the Spirit working with the Word. And when he met me at the back door, you thought I'd have killed his wife and kids and sold his house. from. I was a dirty rot. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Tell me what was going on. And he began to explain. He liked the name it and claim it verses and so forth. And I was like, okay, well, those belonged to, and I tried to get him to understand some right division, and it was not, he just wasn't having it. So he, we didn't see him for a little bit, then he came back, and all the, back and forth, and finally I just looked at him and said, listen, <laughs> and by the way, every time he met me at the back door, it was a chew my ear off session. So I just told him, I said, enough. You need to start here at zero, and let's figure this out. And he goes, I don't want that anyway, and he took off. So I'm like, okay. But uh, a lot of them, they were. Yeah, he was going back to his old church is what he said. But see, that's what's happening here. Verse 6. But who's, Finish the verse. But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, that's pretty clear what he's talking about there, I think. All right? It, it isn't going to go well for the guy that offends the little ones, the little child. So if you receive the little one and you treat him well, you treat him according to who he is and, you know, again, when you did that to the least of them, my brethren, you did it unto me, then you're going to be good to go. But if you don't do that and you offend him and you're not taking care of him, see, the idea here that he's t teaching the disciples and he's trying to get across is that God's going to take care of his own people and just because they are, the, they are pictured in this little child doesn't mean that they're not important. Because sometimes we look at the little children and we dismiss them. We don't think, and you can't do that, especially here in Matthew. They're very important. And the problem that's going to come along is 
is that there are going to be members of the nation that are going to come along and not count them as important. Deuteronomy, Moses calls, tells to the nation that a foolish nation is going to get you. Paul talks about it in Romans. In Acts 2, they look at Peter and the guys and they say, where'd you guys go to school? Where'd you get your education? Who trained you? They look at the Lord in John 7 and you know what they do? The same thing. Where'd you get your school? Where'd you get your education? Where did you come through? Who taught you? You're sitting here yakking at us. Well, you didn't come from our schools. We know what teaches in our school. They took note of them, see? And that's the point. The point is that they're not talking about the wisdom of men. They're talking about simply coming in and being who they are. And that issue here, by the way, what did the Beatitudes say back over there in Matthew 5? The meek shall inherit the earth. That's humility. The humble, you see. It's not the issue of them coming along and trying to be something in the eyes of the world out there, but rather just come in and be who you are, the little flock, the believing remnant. They're going to come up against you, and guess what? Verse 7, 18, 7, what's that first word? Whoa. Stop. Pay attention. Whoa. Hey, yo, big time. Danger. Pay attention. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Woe. <laughs> you know, that's like, uh, I, you know what Isaiah's horse was? His name was, woe is me. <laughs> that's Isaiah's horse's name. Woe. Is me. Whoa, whoa, slow down here. Pay attention. Stop. Danger. Warning. Because woe into the world because of offenses. You know what? They're going it, to, if, for it must needs be that, off, that offenses come. You know what he's reminding the disciples? Same thing Paul reminds us. You guys, we live in a sinful creation. And offenses are going to happen. They're going to come about. They're go we live, we groan in this creation. And, it, and if the Lord tarries, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. It isn't going to get any better with their reaction to us. That's what he's telling these guys here. Woe unto the world because for it must needs be that offenses come. They're going to come because of the sin-cursed creation. It's going to happen. Little flock, disciples, don't be surprised. Now, what's coming down the track that he's looking at? The 70th week of Daniel. See, he's getting them ready. He's leaving. He's going to go away. He's going to die, be buried, resurrect. He's getting them ready for the Acts ministry and going on into the tribulation. And you go read Revelation and just kind of do a, you can just read it lightly. You don't have to dig into it. And real quickly, you realize that that's not going to be a good time to be on the earth. And they're going to, they're going to take it. So things are going to be bad. And he's saying, I know it's going to be bad, and I know it isn't going to change, but I'm telling you guys, it's, go it's going to be tough. you got to be ready. 
And that's the point in the passage here is that it's going to get tough, but guess what? God takes care of his people. And the little ones are not unimportant to him. And rather, they are very important. And by the way, verse 6, I'll just remind you, he's talking to believers here. He's talking to the disciples here. They've come up, verse 1, who's going to be the greatest? And he said, he, he, said, he called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. He's in, the, he's in a round circle and the child's sitting in the middle and he's talking to just that believing, the believers there. And he's telling them. He uses that little child. That little child is not. He uses that little child as that illustration of that little flock of believers. And he's talking about the, the, that, those believing, the little ones, and how God's going to take care of them. He says, listen, offenses are going to come, but I'm going to tell you what. There are going to be some that are going to help you out, but woe to them that don't help you out. It'd be better for them to just jump off the bridge and die than what's coming their way. So that's the issue. Now, this is a picture. Come back with me to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. It's fascinating to me as we go through this that all of this has been here on the pages of the Word. And the Lord is just bringing them to fulfillment. When what Matthew 18 is getting them ready to do is to go into that tribulation. Last week we were talking about the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. Zechariah 4, where you have the two olive trees, that's where, that's where the two witnesses get their roots, if you will. And these are the two anointed ones and so forth, uh, Zechariah 4, verse 6. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, this is what the disciples had forgotten in Matthew 18. It isn't going to be by might or by power. It's going to be by what? The Spirit of God. See? They think it's going to be them going in, and it isn't going to be. Job's already told them that. You're not going to destroy the Antichrist. You guys think you're going to destroy the Antichrist? He's a behemoth. He ain't, there ain't no way you're destroying it. The only one that can destroy the Antichrist is the one that made him. Well, who made him? The Lord did. Okay, verse 7, Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they, notice that, small things. That's the little things, the little flock, the little child, the little ones. They, for they shall rejoice and shall see the plumet in the hand of Zerubbabel with the, these seven 
there are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. Again, the idea there, come back over to Matthew 18, the idea there is victory that's going to be had, it's going to be had by that little group. When they go into the kingdom, and when they go in as who they are, so Matthew 18 They'd forgot, they thought it was by might and by strength, by them doing, but it's not. It's by the Spirit of God. And that's what he's saying there to them. Verse 7 again, he says, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offenses cometh. It, again, the offenses are going to come, and. Uh, they come because of the natural consequence of living in a fallen creation. That's why they come. And uh, it's for them as well as it is for us. And uh, when he said, by the way, the man. Notice, woe unto the man. Matthew 26 identifies that man as Judas Iscariot. That man, the Antichrist. He's getting them ready for the trip, for the second coming for the kingdom to come. And uh, that man, very, very important. Verse 8, Matthew 18, 8. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off, cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee, it is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Very interesting passage. We've already seen it similar. If you flip back there to Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5 verse 29. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that, th that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. And if it, if, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. <laughs> same passage, same kind of thing. But what happens here, when you come back to, to uh, Matthew, Matthew 18, that issue of everlasting fire... Then in verse 9, he calls it hellfire. Now, the fire is associated with the second coming. In Mark 9, when we looked over there, when we went through Matthew 5, you know, if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter into life maimed, that one, than to do what? Enter into the fire that, will not, not, uh, that never shall be quenched. Okay? So, obviously, here in Matthew 18... When it says to cast into everlasting fire, then Mark 9 says it's a fire that never shall be quenched. That'll tell you what the everlasting fire is, hell fire. But what happens is, is people pull the old Greek book out and start eoning you to death and all this stuff back and forth and just stick your fingers in your ears until they're done. You see their mouth quit moving and then maybe it's safe to go in because what do these verses say here? By the way, plucking out your eye and cutting off your hands are figures of speech. Okay? It's not a literal thing. But hellfire 
is a literal thing. So people say, well, you know, if you're going to say it's a figure of speech to pluck your eye out and cut your arm off and all this, then why isn't hellfire figurative? Well, that's just being stupid. It really is, you know, because it's not. And what's going to happen here is when you, and by the way, we've studied hell in the past, <laughs> and, and I would encourage if you've got questions, we, we, they're on the website, they're on YouTube. The issue here is when Jesus Christ comes back in his second coming, he comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. He comes back to the earth, and when he does, you know what he does? He sets the place on fire. And there's a piece of, of, of land over there, and his return, when, if, I don't draw this stuff good on the, on the board, so I'm not. So you think about the Mediterranean Sea. Think about where Jerusalem is, and the Jordan River, and the Sea of Galilee, and the Dead Sea. He's going to come down out of the north, down along the coastline, so between Jerusalem and the coast. And as he comes down, he's he comes back in a flaming fire. He's scorching the earth out there. And when he gets down at the bottom end of the south end of the Dead Sea, a place called Idumea and Bozrah, he literally burns off the topography that exposes the shaft down into hell. And there's a door on it. It's got gates. It's got a lock on it. It's got all this on it. But right now it's hidden from view, thanks to the flood and other things, okay? Time, <laughs> the shifting sands. But he literally opens that chasmon up over there. And Isaiah 66, in the millennial kingdom, that shaft is opened up. You'll hear people call it Gehenna. And that's what it is, the garbage dump. And what happens in the millennial kingdom, okay, is that in his second coming, he opens the shaft. Well, just look over. Look over. Flip back to Isaiah 66. Okay? Isaiah 66, verse 20. Well... 22, 21. And I will also take of them for priests and for Levites, saith the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an, an, an abhorring unto all flesh." And what he's talking about there, and where we're at over here in Matthew 18, 8 and 9, is that when, that when the Lord comes down in his second coming and he opens up that shaft that's going to give them a portal, a look, a gateway down into hell. In the millennial kingdom, instant justice is done. There's no courtroom. There's no wait a minute. There's no plea. The devil has been bound so you can't say the devil made me do it 
man's learning that it's God, that it's their sin nature is the problem. So as the law is offended, instant judgment, they take them over and they drop them down this shaft. So then as people, as, and this is as the Gentiles come, as Israel comes in worship, they're going to walk right by this shaft. Now, by the way, at the same time, there's another opening over in Babylon in, in the, in the Euphrates, Euphrates River that's the zoo where all the crazy creatures and all the demons and all are held. So when they come in from the east and from the west into that city to worship, guess what they pass by? Monuments. They pass by this. All the flesh. Guess what they get to look down in that shaft and see? The worm that doesn't die. The fire that's not quenched. And you know what they remember? They remember that this is the carcasses of men who have transgressed against me. Then when the great white throne judgment happens, it's closed up It's because it's all cast into the lake of fire. So when you come back to Matthew 18, <laughs> I tell you what, if you offend these guys, woe unto the man that does this. It's not going to be a good thing. It's going to be worse. You better just, well, 18.10, take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father, which is in heaven. <laughs> you better take heed that you don't despise these guys, these little ones. And again, there's a, there's a, he's talking to the disciples because what are they going to have to do? What are they going to do? They're going to turn around now and go out into that lost nation and say, come out from that untoward generation. They're going to bring people out of that apostate nation into that little flock. And you know what they got to treat them like? The little children. They can't pull the, well, I've been doing this for 40 years, so you sit there and shut up and listen to me. No, they, gotta, they can't do that. That's, a, that's an offense. They got to come in and say, hey, we're here to serve you. And again, it's that issue of training them that the issue in the kingdom isn't to lord over. Are they the authority? Yes, they're in ruling. They got the 12 thrones. They're the 12 nations. Or the 12 nations. The 12 tribes. Well, that's going to make it. Richard Jordan's son says 12 nations. <laughs> no, the, tw the 12 tribes, they've got their authority over the cities and all that. But the, man, the way that it's, they're thinking about it is to be one of humility. Not who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Not verse 1. Who's going to sit on your right and left hand, mama, mother of the Zebedee's boys? Okay? Take heed. Take heed. And again, you know... What begins to happen here is you begin to, verse 11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. What's going to happen here, or what is happening here, is that the element of their salvation is being demonstrated for them. 
in Israel's salvation package, okay, faith is always the underlining issue. But in Israel, it's going to be faith that's now going to go do some works, that's now going to go do some physical, literal, physical, visible, earthly works, because that's the kind of program that they're in. That's the kind of program that they're handled. In the kingdom program, salvation is on the basis of faith plus then working, going and doing something. All right? They, their salvation does not work like our salvation unto eternal life. That's what I'm talking about. All right? For the, verse 11, we'll pick up in verse 11 again next time. But just on this issue that's coming out of verse 10. For the Son of Man, notice verse 10. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. That's some interesting things in that verse. The first issue is that issue of salvation in the kingdom program has to do with entering into a literal, physical, visible, earthly, Davidic kingdom on the earth with the headquarters at Jerusalem. That's the issue. And for these guys, that's where they get their salvation. Come over to Acts chapter 3. That's where they get things that, that you and I get the moment of our trusting Calvary, Acts chapter 3, and what happens is, is this is where everybody gets so confused about this. The only response that God ever accepted from anyone is faith. Then the content of the faith, I said it last Sunday morning in the Romans class, the content of our faith is the word of God that was given to us, the dispensational issues. That's why right division is so critical. Because if you're looking at Acts 3, verse 19, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins, notice that, may be blotted out. Not are. Not Colossians 2 where you're forgiven. You are forgiven all your trespasses. It's a what? It's a maybe. Keep reading. May be blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Well, there's the second coming. So what are they looking forward to? Having their sins blotted out, but when? When the second, in the kingdom over there, getting over there? You see, they were never looking for having their sins forgiven in the moment. They were always looking forward to the kingdom. And that's where, and we're, now we're talking about salvation unto eternal life. They're, they always are looking over there. But what about the individual guy over here? Remember the publican and the, the Pharisee and the publican over there? Was that Luke 18, I think? And, and at the end of that, God, the, the father or the son says, that man is justified. He doesn't say saved. He says justified because of his faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness his faith is what justified him now the publican will go and do abraham had to go do some things but his faith noah i love noah 
it's so simple. What was the word of God to Noah? Build a boat. Build an ark. Nothing about trusting the shed blood. Nothing about a kingdom. Just build a boat. And you know what? It says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. It's interesting. How is that? What, what was Noah's message? Hey, you know what? You want to see Noah's message? <laughs> I'm sorry. Come over to Jude. Jude. Here's Noah's message. I often think about this. Sorry, I kind of get off track a little bit. It's not my notes. <laughs> look at Jude, and look at verse 14. Look at Jude 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam. Now, Enoch is Noah's dad. Uh, not dad, great-great-grandfather. Because you had Lamech, and Lamech had Methuselah, and Methuselah had Noah. I, if I remember the genealogy back, back there. Okay? So Enoch doesn't die. He's translated. When his son Methuselah is born, because Methuselah talks about the end, the judgment will come. Now watch what Enoch does. By the way, the only way you know that Enoch does this is because you got Jude 14 in your Bible. Okay? Jude 14, Enoch prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you think they're ungodly? So if that's what Enoch is saying back there in Genesis 6, 7, Okay, guess what Noah's saying? Same thing. You know what Noah's saying? You have a bunch of ungodly people out there, and judgment is coming, and it's coming in the form of rain and of a flood, and they laughed him to scorn because they didn't understand what rain was and flood because they'd never done that before. They had no clue of that. And, rather, and, and so he started building a boat, and they come out, hey, what are you doing that for? Judgment's coming because you're unclean, you're, un, you're ungodly, and you know what? Godly men are going to get in the boat. Ah, we don't need that. What's that goofy thing look like? You know, blah, 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 right? Now you come back to Matthew 18. That's what's happening here. They're, they understand that their forgiveness, their spiritual blessings, all of the stuff promised to the nation of Israel sits over there in that kingdom. Noah's faith, he's a preacher of righteousness. Why? Because his faith was based upon the revelation of God's word to him at that moment. Now, they have faith, but their faith is telling them we've got to go do some physical activities. What does our faith say? No working. But him that believeth not. I'm sorry, him, Romans 4, 5. Man, I am butchering it tonight. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's what our faith says. So if you, our faith says, it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. That's what our faith says. Our faith says, we can't do it, we can't add to it, we can't help it. He did it all. 
and I owe everything to him. So if you're saying, if you say, well, you got to go work for your salvation, then guess what? You're in unbelief, not in faith, in belief, okay? That's what's happening with these guys. They understand their package, their salvation package. They understand that they've got to go do some physical things so that they can enter into that coming kingdom. So you know what they know? They know, they're learning, I should say, I shouldn't say they know, but they're learning here, we got trouble coming our way. But God will take care of us if we just come in humbly, walk humbly in the Lord. Don't get this big fat head thinking we're all something special. By the way, the apostate Israel thought that. They thought God got a good deal when they got them. And the Lord's proven over and over again, no, that isn't the issue at all. Now, if you'll notice in verse 10, there's a thing here real quickly about uh, that in heaven their angels do always behold the face. See that issue about the angels? This is where the guardian angel idea comes from. Eight, Matthew 18, 10. Okay. So what in the world is he talking about here? Well, you have to understand what angels are and, 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 and their activity. And the fact is, is that they can represent a whole bunch of people. First, come over to Acts 12. Just get an idea here real quick. In, in Matthew 18, they are, they are representing that little children, the little flock there. That's who they're representing. They function as representatives of at least, I got seven different groups here that they represent. One, the first one, Matthew 18, is the little flock, the little children. Acts 12, Acts chapter 12 and verse 15. Acts 12, 15. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. <laughs> I love. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, it is his angel. Now, what's happening here is Peter's down there in jail. And they said, Peter showed up. And they said, no, it's, it's what? It's his angel. So you've got Peter being represented there. Peter, you know, he got out of jail and knocked on the, <laughs> knocked on the do door and the, and the little girl there said, hey, Peter, and they said, you're nuts. He's down there in the jail. And, but yet finally they said, it's what? It's his angel. See? So angels represent there. Uh, you go over to Revelation 1, 2, and 3, and the angels represent those church, the, lo the local churches there. You go over to uh, uh, Daniel 12 and verse 1, and the angel can represent the nation of Israel. He does it through Michael. As Michael is the prince uh, of, uh, of the nation of Israel. Uh, Daniel 10, the, the angels there represent the nations of the world as they look at the prince of Greece and Persia up in the, and in, in, in so forth. Um, let's see, uh, Isaiah 63, come on over there, Isaiah 63. They, re they represent uh, many different things. They sit up in those principalities and powers, Isaiah 63. 
uh, Romans 8 tells us. They, they function in different uh, manners and so forth. Isaiah 63, verse 9. Isaiah 63, 9. They, they will represent, uh, they, they have that correspondence between heaven and earth. When we looked in the heavens and so forth, you, you know, the, that functioning there. Isaiah 63, 9. In all their affliction, and he's talking to Israel here, he was afflicted. Now that's the Lord. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Notice when he says the angel of his presence, he's talking about the appearance of the Lord and there's the word angel. Now angels are just simply messengers. Um, you go back over there to Hebrews, you know, 1. Go back over to, well, you know what? Go to Psalms 34 to quit first. Psalms 34. So when he talks here about angels, angels belong to the nation of Israel. They don't belong to the body of Christ. Uh, Psalms 34. So back there in Matthew 18, that, that he's, that's a representative issue. So the little flock down on the earth has a correspondence representation up in the, with the Father, before the Father's face. Psalms 34, verse 7. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. The angel of the Lord camps round about Israel. He delivers them. Come over to Hebrews 1. And he takes care of them in a very supernatural manner. And he delivers them from their enemy. There's no issues. There's no problems. Hebrews 1, verse 13. But to which of the angels saith he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? The function of the angel has to do with going around and ministering for the people that are heirs of the kingdom hope. And that's who he's talking about in Matthew 18. Okay? That in there, that in heaven, Matthew 18, 10, guess what's in heaven? Their angels are sitting there before the face of the Father. And again, it's a reference to the supernatural protection of the little flock in the time of the offense, i.e., the time of the second coming, Jacob's trouble. By the way, when they flee into the wilderness, what's waiting for them in the wilderness? The table of blessing. They're going to be fed in the wilderness for time, times and a half of times. Back half, three and a half years, they're going to be taken care of and protected. And there they go. Okay? So when we come back over here, by the way, for you and I, we don't need an angel. We don't need a guardian angel because we have the Spirit. And I'd rather have the Spirit He's the top guy than a bellhop and an angel. I'd rather have the big guy, and that's what we have. So when you think about the angels and, the, and then us having the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the angels are bringing the messages. What does the Holy Spirit do? We have the Holy Spirit. We interact with the Word of God. We've got the message right here. We don't need someone to bring it down, teleport down, and so forth. Okay? All right, we'll pick up in verse 11 there. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost.
and uh, we'll talk about that last time. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing here. These guys, they're, they're knowing, they're beginning to learn, things are moving. They ain't quite got it. They think that it's a, it's a who's better than who, it's a who's who. So he brings in this illustration of the little child and says, no, the issue in the kingdom, thinking, the mentality of the kingdom is going to be one of humility and of service and of, of, of the least. Okay? And then that issue now down in verse 10, 9, 10, 8, 9, 10, he's going to take care of them. And he's going to do it. And uh, they do have a hedge about them. They do. I mean, you think about an angel. In one night, he killed something like 285,000 or 185,000 or something like that. That's working to kill that many people, you know, in one night. So it's like, whoa, that's some supernatural working for a living right there. <laughs> okay? But uh, don't, don't get, don't, people use verse 10 to say, see, you've got a guardian angel sitting before the face of God in heaven, you know, and they got him with the wings and all that. Revelation says that an angel has the appearance of a man. So an angel is not winged, but cherubims are and seraphims are and so forth. They got different things to them. By the way, the only winged angel that was mentioned, that's mentioned in Scripture over there in Zechariah, I think it is, or Ezekiel, one of the two, and it, the name of that angel is Wicked, with a capital W. It's Ezekiel, yeah. So it's like, whoa, okay, <laughs> Wicked. <laughs> and yet we got them dancing around on the front on our dashboards. <laughs> you know, the little bobbleheads or whatever. And, uh, or hanging from uh, something to protect us, you know, and it's like, man, it's, but what does religion do? That's what religion does to you. So, anyway, dear Holy Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for your word. Thank you for everything we have in you, and we're, we're, we uh, appreciate that. We appreciate all the spiritual blessings as a present possession and not having to wait. We appreciate the fact that you deal with us differently than with Israel, but yet at the same token, we appreciate the fact that what you said to Israel is what you said you'll do, and that we can have confidence you'll do the same for us. In your name we pray, amen.